This is Mate, a digital radio show about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. It's a podcast where each week we talk to an interesting guest about topics like digital marketing, innovative tech, and what it all means for business. Today, we're speaking with Lee Price. Lee is a bit of a self-proclaimed nerd, which is, to be honest, kind of why I love him. Lee's one of Melbourne's best social media analysts, and today we geek out about data, social analytics, and the impact that it all has on marketing. So let's go and talk to him. So, who are you and what do you do? Well, my name is Lee. I work as a social media analyst. Um, usually that means that you're cool enough to hang out with the marketing team, but nerdy, nerdy enough to hang out with the analytics team. So I spend most of my day working with social analytics tools, um, very similar to web analytics, if you've seen those tools, um, but just working with a different set of data. Um, there's slightly different ways you go about pulling out insights from that kind of tool, but Businesses usually use it to find out insights about what people are saying about them on social media or their competitors or their industry at large. Mm -hmm. Um, There's an example of how we've put this to use practically. Um, There was a TV network that we did some work for. Um, We were looking at what people were saying about a particular TV show. And we started to pull out from the people that were mentioning that TV show as an audience, what were the other brands that were talking about? So... Their ad sales team found that really insightful to know what kind of brands they should be going after. Um, it was also interesting that this was a general entertainment kind of show. There was The audience was referring to certain bands and musical artists quite frequently, so they were able to use that insight to understand these are the kinds of artists that this audience likes to talk about and likes mm. to see, so they can use that insight to understand what kinds of acts they should be booking onto the show. Yeah, speaking of music as a general rule, I usually find that no matter what topic you're analysing, it could be the superannuation industry, it could be retail, it could be finance, One Direction will appear in everything. (laughs) It doesn't matter what you're looking at, they just creep in everywhere somehow, so that's the only thing I've learnt. (laughs) (laughs) That's really funny. Um, So, what what kind of tools might you use to uh, analyze this data? Mm -hmm. I know web web analytics is um, a common one, Google Analytics, Mm -hmm. but for because social analytics is probably not a very well known uh, industry or or kind of area of expertise. Yeah, yeah. it can be quite misunderstood too. So, I think some people see things like word clouds and think that's what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you've got a Facebook page and you've logged into Facebook page insights, that's a really good example um, at a high level of what social insights are all about. So, looking at the data that's generated by your social activity. Mm -hmm. Um, So, the Facebook page insights are great for understanding what's happening on your own channel, where you start to use external tools as listening for mentions a bit more broadly across social. So, some of the tools you'll see used quite frequently um, throughout the industry are tools like Nuvi, uh, Social Studio, Lexa, um, Sprout Social. They all do slightly different things. They've all got slightly different price points, um, but they're all used to analyze social data. Mm-hmm. So why should a business care about this? Mm. So one thing I see a lot is a business reporting on their own social channels, mm-hmm. and that's great. You can get a certain level of insight into how your own content's resonating, the marketing messages you're pushing out there, what's resonating. But there's this whole universe of people talking about you outside of your own channel. Mm-hmm. And it's this really powerful set of data that we don't see a whole lot of businesses looking at, but there's some really unique and interesting insights there. And I think the reason why it perhaps doesn't resonate a lot of the time is that it can be really hard to push put things like KPIs against that kind of data because you've mm. got absolutely no control over what people are saying and if they're talking about you more or less. And it can be a bit of a lucky dip. So you don't always know what you're going to get, but yeah. it's so powerful. And particularly if you're working in the social team, that puts you in such a privileged position because you've got all this really cool data coming into you that you can disseminate out through the wider business's insights that touch pretty much every part of how a business operates. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is uh, most businesses will report on their own social channels internally. So, they're doing things like how many likes we've got, how many followers, what sort of engagement we're getting, um, how many complaints maybe we get via Twitter and, and Facebook that we're directly mentioned in. Yeah. That The things that are like directly within your own, um, I guess, owned channel. Uh, 
But what this social analytics, the interesting part that you're referring to is the whole conversation that happens outside of that. Yeah. So when people talk to each other on Twitter about Telstra or Officeworks or whatever, yeah. and, and those brands are not a part of that conversation. Yeah. And okay. so you see people start to dabble in it when they run things like campaigns. Mm-hmm. You're probably looking at, you know, how are people talking about this campaign outside of their own channels? Or a hashtag or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. But think about if you're using this data to look at things like competitors and understanding from a month to month basis, what are people, what's driving the positive and negative conversation about those brands? Often the competitors aren't even looking at that data at all. So you can take advantage of that straight away. Mm-hmm. What do businesses do with this data? Mm. So typically we see a lot of marketing teams using this and comms teams. Um, Risk mitigation is probably the number one reason why businesses invest in these tools. So a lot of the time they'll have it in their back pocket in case there's a crisis. So you can monitor these events in real time and understand who's driving the conversation. What are people talking about? Um, so that can directly inform a comms team's activity. Uh, marketing teams might be using it for publishing and engagement, and they're also using it a little bit for analysing. Um, we've seen a few really evolved market insights teams using it. Um, so it's not the complete end. It's not a replacement for market research, and it never will be, but mm-hmm. it's a pretty powerful tool to have in your pocket when you're operating in that space. So... Um, market research teams, they instinctively get this stuff and mm. they're usually pretty into it. It's interesting because a lot of market research is inherently flawed. Um, you get... <laughs> well, you're upsetting your audience already. <laughs> <laughs> you get you get groupthink uh, in focus groups, for example, yeah. where some the, the loudest person's voice directs the entire gr- group of people that are part of it. Um, so, this is a really interesting way to kind of tap into conversations of people that don't know they're being observed yeah and it, you know it's not a controlled sample you're taking just you take you're listening to what's out there you can't control who is and isn't speaking so there's some topics that people just won't talk about um mm-hmm. so for example we did some recent work on um one of the topics we we're looking at was um parents accidentally locking their kids in the car yeah now we know that happens to scores of parents every week by accident of course no one's talking about it on social media so the few people that do just get vilified, so of course they're not posting about it. So not everything is out there. People mm-hmm. don't jump out of bed to rave about how great their superannuation account is. But <laughs> yes, if you're, you know, if you're one of those brands that's in that discussion, or maybe just looking at an industry level about what people are saying, there's some really interesting insights there. Yeah. And so I've seen some of the reports that you produce, Lee. Um, you know, there's there's some really great like share of voice graphs, so you can compare your brand to competitors. Um, there's things like mentions over time um, of particular keywords or, or or the brand name or things like that. And you look at like I think one of the most powerful things that I've taken out of the reports you do is uh, the the peaks and troughs in in those graphs. And you go, all right, well, what drove uh, we we had like three times our normal mentions of our brand name on this day. What happened on that day? And then you yeah. dig into that and you pull out some like some verbatim um, quotes from Twitter posts, Facebook posts, posts on forums and blogs and things like that, and say, ah, oh, well, this was when we launched X product, or we were in the media because of this, and people had this kind of response to it. Yeah, and then you can do things like sentiment analysis on top of that and say, all right, well, on this day when we were in the news for something, um, the overwhelming majority of people were saying negative things about the brand. So this this peak on the graph looks really good, but it's actually bad because um, people were unhappy with us for, for whatever reason. Yeah. And that's really powerful. Like every peak in conversation, there should be an insight behind it. Mm-hmm. You should be able to take something from that and understand why did it happen? What can we, what action can we take as a business to act on that? So, as an example of where you can really start to quantify that is, um, we saw an incident recently where a certain business launched a whole bunch of new plans and they addressed the benefits for new customers, but they weren't really clear on if you're an existing customer, can you actually take advantage of this call offer? Mm. So, they probably made a decision not to talk about existing customers because it didn't actually apply to them. But sure enough, all these existing customers started piling on with questions and you can actually start to quantify not only the cost in servicing those questions, Mm. but the negative impact that it has on the business. So that's the kind of stuff that if you want to think about making that decision next time, you've got a bit of data in your pocket to understand Mm. what's the impact. Yeah. So that's where I think social analytics as a tool can get quite confused where that's how you should be using the tool to drive a real business outcome. 
not to be producing a fluffy word cloud that shows, you know, here's all the hashtags people used around our brand this month. That's great, but so what? What does that mean for me as a business? Yeah, yeah. And in my role as a digital strategist, I ask a lot of so what questions. Yep. Or uh, what I usually, um, they usually manifest themselves in a why. Yeah. Why are we doing this? What's the purpose? Um, in fact, the people I work with uh, <laughs> kind of um, make them to a bit of a joke. Uh, the <laughs> fact that they go, oh, Adam's going to ask, what's the purpose of this? What's the purpose of this? Meeting? What's, what's the purpose of this brief? What's the purpose of this whatever? We um, need more people like you. <laughs> well... <laughs> But like it's it's a it's really important to ask those why questions. Why yeah. are we doing this? Um, because there needs to be some sort of real business result out of it. Yeah. Otherwise, we're all just high fiving each other, celebrating, and, and having a great time for for no reason. Because like, yeah. there, there was no real impact. It, it looked good. We made each other look good. Yeah. But did we sell more stuff? Did we, you know, did we change customers' perception of our brand? Did we do whatever? Yeah. So yeah. something that we started doing once we had a few more social people in our business is when one of us puts together one of these reports in our Slack, we've got a Slack channel, which we kind of use as the bullshit test. So mm-hmm. I'll put a report in there and I'll just ask people to call bullshit and anything that I can't back up with data or just doesn't look quite right. And that really helps to make sure we're putting out a quality product for our clients. Yep. I like it. I think yeah. uh, I think we should do that uh, across all workplaces. Yes. <laughs> I just assume people are going to call bullshit because you need to be able to back up anything you're saying with data or a reason or some sort of factual insight. Otherwise, it's just fluffy word clouds and meaningless numbers. So, Lee, how did you get to this point in your career where you're doing social analytics? It sounds like a really interesting job. How did you get there? Do you want to start from the start, the early days? Yeah. Let's. Like, okay. what, what was the first job? First job. I worked, <laughs> so I dropped out of uni. I've never you know, finished uni. Can I just can I, can I just interject here? You're the the second guest um, on my show that has dropped out of uni, and you can join the illustrious club of hopefully <laughs> hopefully one day tech billionaires who've dropped out of uni. Oh god! <laughs> Is that I just, I just had no idea what I wanted to do, and I think my critical error back then was plunging into a course that I probably didn't really have an interest in because I just didn't really know what I wanted to do. Yeah, but you feel like society pushes you in the direction of having to study something. You should go to uni. That's what everyone should do. Absolutely. So you do something you don't like, drop out and... Yeah. Yeah. Waste a year of your life, basically. <laughs> and, you know, $10,000 or whatever. Yeah. Well. But um, I, I was talking to this um, with Will Egan uh, in episode three of Mate Podcast and he... Uh, I agree with what he said. You know, there's, there's inherent value in edu- university education. Um, it's not specifically in the actual things that you learn. I think it's in the way that it teaches you to think. Yes. Um, The problem-solving approaches that it teaches you and how to, you know, research in a detailed way. So, I think, you know, if you can take that away from it and into a career, then that's all you really need to learn. Because I don't remember anything about... Well, I remember things about marketing, but I never used them. Really? Never. I don't use any... I literally use nothing... I can't think of the last time I used a marketing framework that I learned at uni (laughs) in my real job. So, I was chatting to... A guy I met at a conference recently who was, I think he's in his second year of uni, and I'll have to send him this after we've recorded it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was so disturbed to hear that in the year 2016, he's being taught about MySpace in his social unit. That's Excuse horrifying. Me? Yeah. What? Right? That's horrifying. I mean, I know MySpace had a resurgence. <laughs> and when I say resurgence, they did a relaunch. It didn't really take off, but... Yeah. What? So, I've been chatting to this guy, and I think he wanted to know, oh like, you know... It, Am I better off getting an education in the real world, learning by doing? Yes. And I said to him, look, I dropped out of uni. I've learnt by doing. I've got an interest in what I do. I'm always quite curious and teaching myself. So that was that was a bit of an eye-opener to me. And I think that was where I started to think about um, mentoring. And I know a lot of people do that as an ego thing, but I quite genuinely thought... That could be interesting to spend time with someone. And if that's the kind of education they're getting at a university, perhaps we can supplement that with some of the real-world stuff we're doing if that's the if we're working in the direction they want to go in. So that was a really eye-opening conversation. Um, so it's been really interesting for me to talk to this guy and understand the kinds of things he's actually been taught at uni. Mm, that's such a worry. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, so that was an eye-opener. So I, I quit uni. I ended up going into uh, just a general admin job, um, working at a natural medicine college, um, 
And from there, I quickly realized I was working on things like desktop publishing back then. This is the late 90s. And I thought, oh, this is the kind of tech direction I want to go in. So I moved to Sydney and this was around the time of the first dot-com bubble. So that was a really interesting time to try and get into, the, into a tech career. Um, so I was working pretty entry-level jobs, a lot of online customer service, um, worked for companies like News Digital. So back then they were trying all sides of businesses like GoFish, if you remember that. That was their eBay competitor. Yep. Um, Head of GoFish. Yeah. <laughs> um, they were running quite a few businesses. Um, I worked for Aussie Mail for a while. So that was when Melbourne Turnbull was actually the chairman. So <laughs> that was interesting. Did you um, meet him? I'm... I definitely remember getting an email from him. Like, you know, he sends out emails to the whole team. And okay. I remember the tone that he wrote in was very much the same kind of Malcolm Turnbull tone you get these days. <laughs> but um, no, I remember he seemed like a very open guy and, you know, always his invitations of, you know, if anyone wants to meet with him, no matter what your position, you're quite welcome to. And Aussie Mail was a pretty big business at the time, so... I wonder if he's still taking that position. <laughs> maybe, I can, maybe I can get him on the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You never know your luck. I've run into him like three times on the street in the last few months. I don't know what's going on, but really? I, I feel like he's tailing me. So <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. So I also worked for eBay and uh, working for all these businesses, I felt like that was my education. Um, yep. Each role only seemed to last a year or two before whatever business priorities they had imploded. So Aussie Mail was running a whole bunch of content sites um, very similar to what AOL was doing and if you remember Optus at home they used to run a whole bunch of content on their cable service so Aussie Mail used to run all these content sites and I, at some point they decided they just weren't interested in that anymore so mm-hmm. I was working on those um, working on some of the news sites like GoFish which they eventually shut down um, and eBay who was a it was a fantastic role and probably one of the best roles I've ever had great team um, they were going through a lot of growth back then in the early 2000s. So being at that business at a time when it wasn't quite a household name, to mm. see it grow into a household name was cool. Um, and unfortunately, they offshored all their customer service uh, to Canada. So that was the end of that. But um, that really gave me a good taste of how digital businesses work, yep. um, how websites are run, and made it pretty clear that was the space I wanted to work in. And um, I took a bit of a left turn after that, so... Quite by accident, I ended up working as a talent manager for a year. Um, and this business was looking after all the big brother contestants from the first season that show was on. That was a bit of an eye-opener. Um, <laughs> so I've, I was <laughs> spending my nights in a lot of dodgy suburban nightclubs with big brother, big brother contestants. I don't see the correlation to uh, social analytics here. No. <laughs> well, um, I quickly decided that wasn't the world for me and uh, got back to digital quick smart. So yeah. Yep. What was what was next? What was next? Um, so through working at eBay, I knew some of the guys who were running eBay's biggest store in Australia, and they were a business called Auction Brokers. So they were selling pretty much everything you could think of. Um, they'd found a really good niche. There was no one else at the time doing this on eBay. Um, they started to sell a lot of surplus stock for a lot of brands, and they were growing quite quickly. So. Um, they got in touch with me and said, you know, we knew from eBay, um, would you like to come join our very small customer service team? So I think the business was about 15 people at that point. Mm. Um, and as auction brokers grew, it um, kind of plateaued out. Um, the audience on eBay is only so big, they could only grow their business so far. So we started thinking about um, launching our own website to sell direct. Um, and that website became Deals Direct, mm. which is a which became the main business over time. Um, so that was a really fun ride. That was my first taste of startups. So when I started, there was only 15 people. We moved through about four warehouses as we grew up. And by the time I left the business there, I think we were up to about 100 staff. So a lot of growth. Um, and that really pushed me up through roles that I was never expecting to take on. So yeah. after working in customer service, our customer service manager was pushed out to work in the warehouse managing things out there. I started managing customer service. Um, that evolved into leading customer experience for the business. Um, and we just learnt by doing. Like I look back yeah. at some of the things we did and I can't believe some of the choices I made without really putting too much thought behind it. Um, mm. Things like there weren't many businesses doing live chat back then, but we thought that looks cool, let's do it. We didn't really think about the impact on 
um, resources. <laughs> you know um, why? Because you weren't experienced in that role. Exactly. And But we just thought, you know what, let's just try it. And yeah. there was a lot of that element. They were quite happy to try things out. Um, we were one of the only businesses out there. Like, social was very much in, in its infancy back then. Yeah. So it was really just things like Whirlpool, um, yeah. a lot of customer service forums. If people were talking about us on there, we'd jump in. And not many businesses were doing that back then. So... That was kind of cool. Um, so as social started evolving, that's when I was in this customer experience role and um, it was fortunate they were quite willing to start launching social media channels and a blog and seeing how that goes. But that was also where I realised that working in a startup is very different from working in a corporate. So yep. um, one of the things I love about working in a startup is that you're just forced to do things that you wouldn't normally do. Mm-hmm. That can be anything from being pushed into a role that you'd never expect to find yourself in to things like when you're working in a warehouse where you've overgrown the capacity and you're putting things in the driveway during the day, running out with tarps when it's raining to try and cover up all your stock. So <laughs> when it was raining in the early days at Deals Direct, um, if, you know, if it started raining, it was all hands on deck. It didn't matter what your job was. You had to run out to the driveway and cover up the tarps. <laughs> so, you know, like that's not the kind of stuff you do in a corporate job, but yep. certainly made things interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so funny. So, so fast forward a few years, um, and you ended up at GE. Oh, there's a job in between that actually. Okay. Yeah. So the CRM tool we were using at Deals Direct that I put into place, um, I noticed, I kind of started to get a feel for wanting to do that at a bigger scale and happened to see Telstra advertising for that. So I ended up working in Telstra's digital team, managing all of their online help. This is when social started to really come to the forefront and I decided that's the part of the business I want to work in. So I basically just started sucking up to their social team, um, mm-hmm. got us a comment in a team that was uh, by pure coincidence right next to the social team. So <laughs> <laughs> worked in that for a year and just wormed my way into the role and they were just starting to use social analytics tools. So um, as I moved into their team, I was looking after Telstra's blog um, and also social analytics. So... They were using Radian 6. Um, that was the first time I even knew a tool like that existed. Um, so a big brand like Telstra, they need a dedicated person because there's so many people talking about their brand on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, at most businesses of that size, quite commonly they'll have a daily stand-up with all the comms guys. People will ask, you know, what PR questions we're getting today and I'd help feed into that conversation. So. Yep helping the business understand what people are saying about them on social. So that's where I really got a taste for it. And I kind of got to a point where I was thinking it'd be great to use this with other businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd really learned a lot at Telstra. So that, you know, the time came to leave Telstra and I thought, I'm just going to try this in a few other different roles in a freelance capacity, which is I think how we crossed paths originally. Correct. Yes. So, <laughs> Um, that was when I realized I was a terrible salesperson. <laughs> I love what I do from a technical perspective, but at the time I just didn't enjoy sales. So I was lucky enough to come across an opportunity at GE on a contract basis, yep. which was supposed to be two weeks originally and ended up being two years. So I started out there setting up um, a very similar framework to what I did at Telstra. So GE operates quite a lot of brands in Australia and New Zealand, so all their financial products. Um, they're such a bizarre business. I've never mm. worked somewhere where we're working on credit cards and you're sitting next to a guy who sells jet engines. Like, yes. That's not something I think I'll ever experience again. They're the true conglomerate. They are. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So that was interesting working on so many different parts of the business, um, looking at what people are saying about their brands and their competitors and pulling out insights. So yep. plenty to work on. Um we were quite fortunate in Australia that we were really surprisingly one of the few parts of GE doing this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So globally, there was a lot of attention that started getting directed at us and we're doing some pretty cool things at a global level. So um, I might just kind of take us on a tiny bit of a tangent um, here. You mentioned Radian 6. Might just be good for people who don't know what that is to yeah. explain because um, you, you gave some analytics tools at the start of the, the podcast, but mm. what's Radian 6 and like what, what do you do in there Yeah, to get these beautiful reports and stuff that you, you referenced? Yeah. So Radian 6, people might have heard of that brand name. That's being pulled into a newer product called Social Studio. So it's kind of the new Radian 6, mm-hmm. same company, just a modernized tool. But in that tool, 
if you see Google Analytics, it's very similar. You're pulling out things like discussion over time, the top keywords people are using, sentiment analysis, but where the real value is, is how you segment that data up. So if you're looking at people using a certain word, how did, how is that word used over time? Um, why were there peaks on certain days? Why did discussion about a certain brand pick up on a certain day? You can keep segmenting and digging into that data until you discover an insight. So, yeah. And, and the way I've described it to people in the past is you kind of, you have a bit of a hypothesis in the beginning. You set up some, some, basically it's key, a keyword research tool and it scans things like Twitter, Facebook and a range of other places to, yep. to pull this data. You have a hypothesis to begin with and you put in the keywords, a few keywords you want to exclude, and then it spits out some charts and reports and whatever. And then you start looking through that and go, hmm, this is strange. What's going on there? And you yeah. dig into that and go, hmm, well, that's wrong. Let me exclude a few other keywords or let me in- include some extra stuff or let me look at this time range. Let's yeah. look at this feed. Let's look at whatever. Yeah. Um, and you just keep digging until you find those insights. Yeah. And like any analytics tool, you can just drown the data, mm-hmm. which is why we help businesses set up a framework. So they know what they're working to. You're not just sitting there endlessly clicking and going into a wormhole. So yeah. I love setting up keywords with like people's favorite bands or TV shows because they'll just sit there for hours. Like it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. If you look at that kind of data in a meaningful way to you, that's a good way to explore it. Yeah. You can really just go down a rabbit hole. <laughs> so we help businesses. We've got, we've got a pretty established framework we use, which seems to work quite well. Um, we wouldn't include anything in a report if it didn't include an insight. So that's generally yep. how we recommend people work. Yep. Since uh, leaving GE, mm. you've now joined a new company. Tell me yes. about it. Yes, Amicus. So, I've always seen this space as very underdeveloped in Australia. I mm-hmm. think there's an enormous amount of opportunity. A lot of corporates using these tools, but not necessarily to their full extent. So, that's always been, I guess, somewhat of an area of curiosity and even frustration for me that this isn't being used more widely. Um, so, I've always seen great potential. So... Um, a friend of mine referred me on to another guy who was starting up this startup called Amicus Digital, um, Blair Cook, who was, um, he used to run Salesforce Marketing Cloud in Australia and left the business to start this startup as a Salesforce services business. So we operate um, in helping businesses get the most out of um, Salesforce's social and email products. So when he came to me and said, you know, are you interested in working in this space, then I thought, you know what, if anyone can make it, you can, because mm. you've probably got the contacts. I've always been so keen to try and make this work, and I believe in it so strongly that I'm willing to take this risk. So, you know, at the time, it was just two co-founders and me, and that was it. So, very risky at the time, but I was so sure that, you know, I don't, I didn't at the time think I really had the sales skills. So, I thought, if I've got this sales power behind me, I think there's so much opportunity here for this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So... If you've got that relationship with the vendor, being able to partner with them to say, you know, if you've bought the product and you want to get the most out of it, these guys can help you out. So, I've had a great time. Um, I like to think that, you know, my hypothesis has been correct. So, we've grown pretty significantly in the year we've been in existence. Um, We don't just operate in the social space. We do a whole lot of stuff in the email marketing space as well. But um, social is definitely where my interest is. So... It's been really gratifying to see that grow and I've loved working with so many different brands and that in itself has pulled out all sorts of new insights for me working with different categories and understanding how they operate. So we've grown pretty quickly. Um, there's 13 of us now after one year. Yep. Um, we're just focusing on Australia for the time being, but there's definitely ambitions to get bigger. Mm-hmm. Mm. So tell me then about um, working in a startup. So, something we talked about recently as a team um, is the level of comfort that we like to work at. And it really highlighted for me that working in big corporates, there is a certain safety net that comes with those roles. There's always that level of safety that's there. Even if things screw up, you've got that support behind you. There's ways to figure things out. Whereas, you tend to be flying by the seat of your pants a lot of the time in a startup. Yeah. Um, and there's that certain level of discomfort where we don't, maybe we have to learn something new. Maybe we're not quite sure about such a big project, but, you know, it's really pushing us into areas that we haven't gone before. That's what I love. And, mm. you know, it's so easy to have a lazy day to be corporate and, you know, not really put too much effort in. But if you don't hustle at a startup, you really feel the effects of that. So yep. it's quite gratifying to see that 
direct impact of what you do on the business. So especially in the early stages when if you manage to bring someone on board as a client, that's massive. Whereas it can often be a drop in the ocean in a business like GE. So mm-hmm. it's really gratifying to see the direct impact that has and how that helps grow the business. Yeah. I, um, it's interesting you say it, it kind of pushes you into areas where you're not quite comfortable. I was, um, I was talking to a friend recently and I, you know, I've always been a bit of a hustler and hustler and trying to, you know, push myself and, and challenge myself with everything I do. Uh, and I said to her, um, I feel like the really interesting things happen for the people who live, uh, in the space that's, um, in between being just outside your comfort zone and, I'm fucking terrified. Yep. <laughs> right? I think that's the phrase we use when we're talking about this. <laughs> so that zone in between those, yeah. like the minimum entry is I'm out of my comfort zone and and uh, the maximum of, of the other. Um, that's where the real magic happens. Yeah. That's where you push yourself um, into a world where you're not comfortable, but you just got to step up and, and get it done. Yeah. And then when you do... You're, you're kind of on that level from that point onwards. Yeah. You step into a, a, something that's outside of your comfort zone and, and when you do it, then that's your new benchmark. Yeah. Rather than trying to like slowly go um, rung after rung on the ladder, you jump to the top of the ladder and try and balance. And when you do, you got to put another ladder right in front of you, another one, yep. another one. <laughs> so every time you do a new project or a new whatever, um, mm. you're, you're 10 steps ahead of everyone else who's just trying to slowly climb, climb, climb. Yeah. So, one of the biggest things that I've realized since I worked here is, like, I always knew I hated sales. It was one of the reasons why I don't think I did very well as a freelancer, because I just hated having those conversations. But since I started here, I think our managing director pointed out to me after the first few months that I've been having sales conversations with people, and I didn't even realize it. Mm -hmm. And I think I had a very preconceived notion of what a sales role is. I think I thought it was a very slimy kind of process. Yep. In my head, you know, you had to be closing every deal. And I've realized over time that sales conversations are just about helping people. Yeah. People are going through something. It's all, I genuinely love hearing what people are doing with this stuff. Sometimes we can help out with advice based on what we've heard from other clients. I'm always, you know, if we've learned something from another client, if we can offer that kind of advice to someone else. I love buying coffees for people and just having these conversations. Mm-hmm. If we can help out, we can. If that leads to something more, that's awesome. And if it doesn't, that's cool. Maybe we gave you something useful and you'll tell someone else about it. So, Mm -hmm. my big learning has been that I'm quite comfortable having their sales conversations. And it was something that I used to detest the thought of. Mm. I I think I'm lucky because I'm a massive fucking nerd. I love talking about this stuff with anyone. So, (laughs) it's it's genuinely interesting to me to hear what people are doing. But... You know, if people need help, they'll tell you what they want. You, mm. Like in a sales role, you just have to listen to what people are saying. Yeah. They will tell you quite explicitly what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. If you can help them with that, that's great. Um, and if you can't, hopefully you know someone in your network that can. But yeah. I found that if you actually just take the time to listen to people, they'll pretty much tell you flat out what they need. Yeah, yeah. So, I wanted to just kind of shift gears a little bit. What would you recommend uh, businesses do with... Social analytics. What's the use case? Why should yeah. I buy it? Why is it important? Yeah. Why is, why, why is social analytics important? There are so many insights flying around out there that people are saying about your business or your brand or your competitors that are so valuable. No matter what role you work in, it's such a grab bag of stuff, but it's just so valuable. And it can often be hard to, like, you don't know what you don't know, right? So that's why it can be a little bit hard for some people to swallow. But once you've got this in your business and if you've got the capability to disseminate it in an interesting way, you know, if you're working in a content role, guess what? You can, you can quickly see what people are interested in about your brand or your industry. You can quickly see what's having a really negative impact on your marketing. There's so many insights around out there. Um, even just for your service team, like if you, you can quickly see service opportunities or automation opportunities or, new digital tools that you might need to build. Um, there's so many opportunities out there. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really interested to see some of the more middle ground social analytics products kind of opening up and broadening up and making them much more accessible to mm-hmm. maybe smaller agencies and smaller brands to use because um, there's just so much interesting stuff out there. Yeah, some of the more plug-and-play solutions that don't need a dedicated analyst like yourself that don't cost an arm and a leg to implement and, mm. and service and that kind of thing. 
So they'll get you, you know, to a certain extent. And generally those cheaper platforms tend to have pretty templated dashboards. Yep. You'll always need that one per like you'll never be able to pull a business inside out of these platforms. You need that degree of interpretation, mm-hmm. which is where we either try to add the value ourselves or we try to train up people to look at that data in a way that makes sense to their business. Mm-hmm. Um, I really get the shits when I see people putting like word clouds and things like reach in reports, which we were talking about earlier this week. So yeah. reach Va- gives me the, the vanity shits. metrics. <laughs> That's here, right? Like this should be insight driven, not vanity driven. Like sure, you know, yeah. supposedly 5 million people were talking about your laundry detergent this month. Is that really the case that one in five people in Australia were talking about, you know, your laundry detergent? Probably not. Yeah. So... It is interesting to look at things. I call it potential reach because that's what it is. Mm. It's interesting to see the peaks. Like, that's the numbers that I don't care about. That if reach jumps up, that's where the insight is. Yeah. If reach went up, why did that happen? Mm-hmm. That's what's interesting. Yeah. Just to, just while we're on this topic of vanity metrics, mm. I think a lot of social reporting is not driven by a need to understand customers better or to understand how people feel about your brand or what they're talking about. I think most social reporting is done to show internal stakeholders within the business that we're active on social and we're doing a good job. So continue yeah. to pay our wages and continue to you know invest money in this part of the business. It's a conversation we have quite a lot with brands. It's quite common to do this kind of reporting and that can make sense a lot of the time. But as a team, if you're producing this report and you start looking at not just your own data, but this earned data that's out there as well, that puts you in such a great position because all of a sudden you're not just reporting on your own social channels and feeding insights back into your own team. You're feeding out quantified real insights of value throughout the business Mm -hmm. and what a position that puts you in. And all of a sudden you'll see more people really start to pay attention to what you're doing. Yeah. They want to start doing deep dives. Well, knowledge is power, right? Exactly. And you know, like, it's not the it's not the be all and end all to market research, but it's such a powerful tool. Mm-hmm. So we find businesses who evolve from a metrics driven to an insight driven approach. There's a lot of success there, and a framework I quite like that is I often encourage people to really scale back on their weekly reports. Mm-hmm. It's really common to get a pretty detailed weekly report with numbers that go up one week, they go down one week. Like so what? Mm. And this is what it comes back to, like me asking the why question. The question I ask in that scenario is, um, why are we producing a weekly report? And yeah. they'll say, oh, you know, because we need to understand what's happening on the social channels weekly. So why? And and I'm kind of probing because what I want to know is, are you changing your publishing behavior or the way you interact with customers, your marketing, based on the insights that come out of that report? Do you have enough time between the Friday that the report's released and then, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the following week to actually make any changes to see a result in the following week's report? Yeah. If not, then don't do weekly. Exactly. Do it monthly. Yeah. Or do it, you know, six monthly or quarterly or whatever, right? Yeah. I I definitely encourage, like, it shouldn't take that long to put together. It should be a quick snapshot of here's what happened last week. Just observational. doesn't need to get into insights. Here's what's coming up next week. Here's four of our, you know, key business priorities and our metrics that match up to those. Yeah. Um, That's it. It doesn't need to be that detailed. Save the insights for a more detailed monthly report. So do you think that kind of report is valuable then? I think it's good to give people a heads up of what's going on. So if something unexpected happens on your social channels or some influencer reaches out to you and something cool happens, it's cool to flag that kind of stuff. But if you spot anything that's potentially the beginnings of an insight, put that in your back pocket, save it for that bigger monthly report or the quarterly report. Yeah. Okay. So I think understanding the difference between like that snapshot style report and an actual deep dive is really important Mm. because I think a lot of businesses think that the snapshot report is is their deep dive report. Yep. And understanding the audience and the purpose of it, and this goes back to the why question, um, is, is really crucial. 
because uh, the snapshot report where you just do some top line numbers and, and whatever, the purpose of that is to just let the internal business know what's going on on social. That's the stakeholder piece to keep people happy. Um, it's just more of like an informational mm. um, update. There's no like decisions you're making on that. It's a quick glance. You read a PDF in like a one pager, maybe yeah. a glance at a PDF in a, an email and go, cool, next. Yeah. Whereas the, the deep dive that you referred to, that's where you spend time looking through all the, and, and digging for insights. And, and that's the kind of report where you actually will, um, change behavior and decisions and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I think understanding the difference is really important. One is, um, the, f- the, the former is not really a report. No. That's, <laughs> that's why I use the word snapshot. Yeah. Um, you're not, you're just, it's just a quick snapshot. Whereas the other one is actually a report. Yeah. And yeah, you're completely right. I think some people bulk at those bigger reports because depending on what you're doing, they can be time consuming to put together. Like mm-hmm. it can take a couple of days a month for someone to do that kind of deep dive analysis. Mm-hmm. But if you're thinking about the thousands of dollars that you're potentially impacting on the business through those insights, it's definitely worth the time. So um, are there, uh, so this is actually a really uh, important question I want to ask you. Is is that kind of report financially viable? Absolutely. You'll see, I guarantee, the first time you put together one of these reports, it blows people's minds. And this data's all been sitting out there in public for anyone to look at, and suddenly someone's just put it together in a way that makes sense within the business internally. It, there's always something in these reports. The first time we run them for a business, people will say, we had no idea people were saying that. Mm-hmm. We had no idea people were talking about us on these particular forums. We had no idea there was this really passionate segment of people that were on this very specific forum. Why aren't we talking to them and getting them to talk about us more? There's always interesting insights there. So once people kind of understand the value, <laughs> it can be quite overwhelming. Like that once they see the value, they'll start requesting deep dives and getting quite detailed and doing massive projects. So... Some of these projects that we have been doing at Amicus, like often people will start measuring their brand name. They might start measuring their competitors. And then we often get called in for really detailed projects where we might spend three to four weeks going into minute detail on what people are saying about something. So enormous levels of insight. So where is social analytics going? What's the future? I think the next thing we're going to see on the horizon is um, platforms doing a much better job of image recognition. So currently you can pull through Instagram in limited ways at the moment. Um, When we need to do really thorough analysis on images, we tend to do it manually. So we'll take a sample size of things like geographic tags on Instagram and we'll jump in and actually manually analyze those and classify them and put the stats together that way. But there's a few really high-end tools out there where logos are recognized in photos. Um, there's some clothing brands where, you know, their shoes are recognized in photos. Yeah. So I'm sure there's all sorts of... And that's an entirely new way of thinking about this kind of data as well. Mm. So I think that'll become more mainstream. And that'll start to feed in as another type of object that you can report on. Um, so, like, it, people are smiling in this photo when they refer to your brand or when yeah. when a can of Coke is in a photo, what what's, what else is in it with yeah. it? People, um, what sort of landscapes are the people happy? Are they animals? What sort of clothing do they wear? Yep. Yeah, wow. So, Coke, funny you mentioned them. Um, one of these really high-end vendors uses Coke as a case study on their website. Yep. So. Maybe we can dig that up for show notes if you've got any. But um, they were looking at, I believe it might have been the coloured cans they had out. They were looking for those cans appearing in photos. Mm -hmm. So they're definitely looking at this kind of data and, you know, who knows how they're matching that to their business priorities. But that's really interesting stuff. Yeah, that's a cool cool case study. Yeah. So that's one thing. Um, I definitely think there's still quite a way to go with looking at data... um, on a geographical basis in a really meaningful way. So most of the social networks make it really hard for these platforms to report on geodata. Mm. Um, Facebook and Instagram, they only push certain aspects of the data through to third-party platforms, and there isn't really a great way to report on geodata automatically at a, you know, automated level very easily at the moment. So... Before Instagram changed their API, it was quite easy to, you know, drop a pin on a map and 
pull in every location within you know a k of that area so that's getting a little bit more difficult but i think um i think the networks will start to realize that there's a bit of money to be made in selling that data through mm-hmm. and that's probably the other thing i've seen changing um facebook's well into this game already. Um, I love how many people don't know that Facebook actually sells your private conversations on to these third-party platforms. So mm-hmm. if, you know, as long as there's a 100 people talking about a brand, Facebook will pass that data through aggregated and anonymized, but it's there nonetheless. So, you know, they're really cagey about what data's passed through. So it could be messenger data. Nobody's really quite sure, I think. I certainly hope not. <laughs> so how does that work then? Because I... It, it, that's so they engage. A bit but. Yeah, it is frightening. They engage it. So I think, well, for one, they've done a great job of keeping it out of the mainstream press. Yeah, <laughs> um, they use a third-party um, vendor called DataSift, and DataSifts. I think they've got um, servers within Facebook's data center. So they, as a third party, suck up all these private conversations and anonymize them. DataSift sell that data on to other third-party platforms. So. Mm-hmm. It's there to report on as an anonymized set of data. I think you're going to see brands like Snapchat, uh, networks like Snapchat start to realize how much money they're sitting on with this kind of data and sell it through to other platforms in a reportable way. So although things are a little bit restricted in some areas, I reckon you'll start to see them realize how much money they're sitting on. Very quietly, they'll start reselling this data through third-party providers and tying it to God knows what. And that's great for nerds like me, but kind of terrifying for the general public. Um, The other thing I think that we're seeing, or hopefully we see in the future, is these platforms need to do a much better job of helping people pull out insights. So at the moment, we're talking about vanity metrics. A lot of the time, if you don't really know what you're doing in these platforms, all you'll do is pull together a pretty chart, a pretty word cloud, without really having the skills or understanding of what it takes to go and actually get a business insight from that data. So some tools like Simply Measured do a really good job of nudging you in the right direction. So they'll say things like, this post got this much engagement more than any other because it talked about these things. That's great for kind of nudging you in the right direction. If you, if you know, if thinking about the older world of these platforms plugging into other business insights platforms and starting to get really much better guidance on what this data means from an insights perspective, if more people could do that, it'd probably put us out of business a little bit. But, you know, I think from an education perspective of understanding what these tools do, I think a lot of people still see them as this fluffy word cloud product and yeah. makes these pretty charts when that's not, that's not what it's all about. It's about using that data to say, so what, what can I do as a business that helps me sell more or gets me, you know, people to visit our website and engage, whatever your business goals are, that's what this should be feeding into. Mm-hmm. So Lee, final question, what is exciting you right now? This is really fucking nerdy. So, one of our newest hires got... So, everyone's got their own to-do um, app, right? Like, everyone's got their own productivity methods. And I'm not trying to convert anyone because everyone's got their own preferred way of doing things. But I've tried over the years many, many different apps. I've gone from very complicated apps to very simple ones. So, I was using Wonderlist up until recently. But one of our new hires got me on a tool called OmniFocus. Mm-hmm. And I'd never heard of it, but... Um, I wouldn't describe it as a learning curve so much as a learning cliff face to get to grips with this product. <laughs> it's so fucking complex. But if you know someone who's into it, and there's a few like tutorials out there, you can almost set it up as a database in a way that makes sense to you. If you're familiar with the getting things done philosophy, that really ties into that. I've never used a system that has reduced my stress so much. Um, it's like I've joined Scientology because it's quite an expensive app. So like Scientology, I'm throwing a lot of money at something and I'm a cult, <laughs> in a cult and I'm a big believer and I'm trying to convert everyone. So <laughs> the beauty of this app is that contextually I can sit down and it will only tell me the things that I can do or should do at that moment and in that context. So what? Yeah, it's amazing. Wait, so how does it work? So you define context within this app. And that can be things like your devices, so my work laptop, my iPhone. There's certain things I can only do on my iPhone, certain things I can only do when I'm on my MacBook. There's certain things I can only do when I'm physically at my office. Mm-hmm. There's certain things I can only physically do at home. There's certain things I can only physically do at Kmart or at an office of a client. So contextually, and you can set like defer dates so you don't even see things until you need to. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's a really simple way to just quickly add tasks and you can add these contextual details later on. So one thing that I love about this is that I can just quickly dump things in. I can just talk to Siri and get it in there when I'm riding my bike to work. It's all there as an inbox for me to kind of tag and set the appropriate context to. So when I get to work, I've got a to-do list on my MacBook that is everything I need to do that day, all my upcoming deadlines. Those are the most important things I need to do. If I walk out of the door and I happen to walk past the client's office, I'll get a reminder that oh, they're meaning to drop in and talk to these guys. Let's go and do that because I'm nearby. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. I'm so not stressed anymore. I used to look at this list of like 50 things to do, and now I only see what I need to do. And it helps you every few weeks you'll be guided to just review the projects you've got so nothing's disappeared and you're not aware of it. I've only been using it for a week and... No, two weeks now? Yeah, two weeks. It's amazing. Has it changed your life? It has changed my life so... Look at me, I'm raving about it. I spent $200 fucking dollars on this thing. $200. <laughs> now, this is where I bulked it, all right? Because that, it's $100 for the desktop app. Um, I've never paid so much for an iPhone app in my life. I think it was like 68 bucks. Wow. The way that my colleague was talking about it, I thought, this is something big. So, I, I think there's a free trial. I used that. I was like, yeah, this makes sense. <laughs> and it, there definitely was a point where I was very overwhelmed, but at one point it all fell into place when I realized, oh, no matter what I'm doing, if I'm just sitting on the tram, I'm only on my phone, there's certain things I can do then, I'll just switch to that particular context and everything I can do then, I'm doing. Um my life just feels so much simpler. Have I convinced you to buy it yet? <laughs> I, it's a worry because I'm I'm considering having a look at this. And <laughs> it's but, amazing. But if it's actually had such a strong impact, then it's something that I should look at. Yeah. Get on board. <laughs> well, Lee, you are a true nerd at heart and that's why I love you. Um, and that's why we kind of geek out together, I yes. think. So, uh, it's, and, and look, that's why I wanted you to come on the show today because... It's, it's, it's perfect, you know. Um, we talk about marketing and the impacts for that, but also technology and like the real nerdy side of it and how I guess what I'm trying to do with this podcast is take one part um, of these kind of four concentric circles and, and see how technology is impacting marketing and how they can all work together. So That's awesome. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for listening to Mate. This was episode number four. If you'd like to hear the show notes for today, you can find them at matepodcast.com slash four. Now, there's lots of exciting things happening. For example, you can listen and subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher, which I encourage you to do. But what I really, really, really appreciate is if you can leave a review on your podcasting uh, channel of choice, that would go a long way to helping more people find the show. So please help us out. A big thank you to Lee for coming on the show. We had a lot of fun, so thank you. Thank you to Courtney Carmen for designing our beautiful podcast artwork. And of course, as always, our music for today was by Nine Inch Nails, used under a Creative Commons license. This was Mate Podcast, and it was made with love in Melbourne, Australia. I am your host, Adam Jaffrey, and this has been a Jaffrey product. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>